Welcome to the Property Developers and Investors podcast, where we explore the detail of what it really takes to achieve great success in the business of property developments and investments. Now let's get into this week's episode. And a very warm welcome to you and welcome to the Planning Podcast episode one. Um, my name is Nigel Green from the Echo Academy and I'm super pleased to have with me today my podcast partner, Mr. David Kemp from DRK Planning. How are you doing? Nigel, David? Nigel, morning. How are you? All right. Very good and very excited about what we've got in store for the listeners as well going forward. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. This is episode one, which is um, that the plan um, is to do a five episode series here. Um, and we're going to talk all things planning. We're going to be quite candid as well, aren't we, David, in terms yes. of detail and get down to the nitty gritty and the reality of life from time to time. You know, the good yeah. stuff. Sometimes not the good stuff, but you know we'll, yeah. we'll get into it and uh, hopefully Real, realistic and pragmatic. I think that's yeah. a great. That's a great. Yeah, no, yeah. That is absolutely fantastic. Great. Um, yeah. So I mean, maybe for the listeners' benefit, um, yeah. Maybe just a bit about your your background. Would that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I run a, a planning practice, and we uh, help clients all over England. We do, don't tend to do Wales; uh, tends to be slightly different in policy terms. Scotland's an entirely different legal system, um, and uh, we've got we're we're mostly London and South East, but we're involved in slightly bigger projects: South West Midlands, uh, up into the north, up into Yorkshire as well, and South Coast. Uh, and we've been running for about 20 years. Uh, and my background, um, well, I, actually, I've been in, in practice for over 20 years, but the uh, the company, DRK Planning, has been running for just over 10 years. And my own background is fairly mixed. It was a surveying background. I was an agency. I was in valuation for a while. Um, and uh, then I went on to be a lawyer, first as a barrister in-house to local authorities, and then as a solicitor in private practice, and then onwards uh, to um, public sector as well, and then formed um, DRK Planning. So quite a mixed background. We've got a small team uh, of people work around us as well in, in the practice, but we also work quite closely with other consultants. Sometimes we work on a risk-sharing basis with clients as well, uh, some of the more exciting stuff and the larger stuff. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty much it. So, I mean, the, the smallest stuff that we do is – small title splits and maybe a bit of background development and all the way up to about 150, 200 homes um, as well. So yeah, it's quite varied. Yeah. And and we've, we've known each other and worked with each other for, it feels like five or six years now. Yes. And, um, yeah, yeah. Quite a number of quite major projects, certainly for us, you know. It's gone quite quickly, hasn't it? Yeah. yeah very much so. Um, yeah. A little bit of a gap in between, wasn't there something to do yeah. with I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah, whatever that was. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, but you know, the service yourself and your team gave us has enabled to, to get get us to where we needed to be even today. Yeah. So very much appreciated. Yeah, yeah. So you know, we had to think about kind of the subject matter. You know, that we can talk about how we can be as uh, as informative as we can to the mm. listeners. Mm, and mm. Um, keep them engaged all the way through this process. And episode one, we thought, you know, let's get let's get down to basics. There's a, there's a wonderful thing out there called prior approval mm. that we we all know about. And uh, but there's equally something called full planning permission as well. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 I think there is a not bit to of, be, not to be ignored. Yeah. No, indeed. And there is a little bit of a mystique, and sometimes people kind of don't understand the difference between the two. So we, we thought, really, we would just spend this. Um, th- this moment in episode one, just to talk about um, the differences. But I think before we get into that kind of nitty gritty, I think, so, you know, something from me and the realisation of um, the differences of value of change of use and how how it can affect, um, in my case, I've, I've just recently bought some, some land mm. um, to the rear of my property. And obviously you get into the DD and, and the nitty gritty around valuations and you know what do I offer the landowner and all these yeah, sorts sure. of things and you, mm. you become quite informed very quickly <laughs> yeah, around, yeah around you know the value of land and you know the 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 advice that I took um around my land where I'm where I'm located is you know it was uh, essentially um 
you know, quite a plot, but the, the information that came back was kind of one acre. If it's oh. agricultural, it's probably worth, depending where you are in the country, of course, and, and the value and location of where this land is, but let's say about 10K an acre, you know, that yeah. sort, that sort yeah. of number. Yeah. But, you know, if you were to drill that, that land uh, with seed, and and sow a meadow, you mm. know, and it become a pony paddock. Let's say mm-hmm. that same piece of land, although you've done something with it, is now possibly worth something in the region of say thirty to forty thousand pounds an acre just by setting seed. Obviously, there's there's change of use requirements that, that that may be needed on that. But if you take it another stage, and let's say that you know, that um, that meadow is now attached in some way or form, as in my case, to my property. Um, there's there's a further consideration that it becomes, if it's attached to a property, it's almost, it's part of the property and obviously mm-hmm. to change of use and approvals. Mm. You know, that land again could be worth up to 60 to 70,000 pounds an acre. Mm-hmm. Now, and, and notwithstanding you know, the ability of, or the potential of getting, say, residential or commercial planning permission on that land, it could be half a million plus, you know, on that same yeah, yeah. So I think the message I, I'm trying to get across here is something that... You called it a value staircase, didn't you? Sort of... Value staircase. Yeah, yeah. But it's, it's, it's the same piece of land that, that God formed, you know, and, yeah, and it's yeah. still there, but it's just by attaching different use classes and different pieces of paper onto that land just really escalates the value. And I think that's... that's It's also sweating the asset, which you can apply in all sorts of contexts as well. You could do it in an urban context and countryside context, but essentially that's what it is. It's it's needing, almost like a piece of dough, or needing the the value, soaking the value right out of the asset as much as you can, as much as policy allows or as much as you might be able to get away with um, if you're not going to do it lawfully at first and then hope to get pd afterwards so yeah and absolutely it's uh it just, just, can be quite powerful can't it in terms of the numbers it, it can very much so and oh. you know i think we all know people out there and you know we've we've done this from time to time but you know spent the money on a on an opportunity maybe on an option or, or whatever it may be but you know spend the time and effort and it's sometimes difficult to uh around how long is it going to take to get that permission yeah yeah desire um, but you know, that could be a planning game. You know, there's, there's people out there that all their business cases is, is getting, um, you know, control of a piece of land mm-hmm. and permission on it and just moving it on, you know, yeah. and that, that's it, you know, so it's a very sound business model, you know, yeah, for, yeah, sure, for sure. Yeah. But anyway, that was that was my little segue, little personal experience there. But it was quite astounding, you know, in terms of the the different price points. And as you say, sweating that asset, wringing yeah. that wet towel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. See what yeah, you yeah, can get yeah. yeah. But, um, anyway, I mean, I mean, if we get back to you know the the subject matter, and you know the the title of this this podcast is what is the difference between PD and uh, and planning permission? You know, what what would your um, summary be i guess on that on that question um i would say in summary that um pd is a shortcut to getting a consent either it's for, for whether whether or not it's for a change of use or additional floor space or buildings on the land um which helps you to circumvent the intricacies and um the extra time cost risk of a full application for planning permission yeah um, so yeah, it's a, it's a very, very good way of adding value either through floor space or, you know, mostly through change of use, um, in a way that is, um, a lot more comfortable in terms of risk, mm-hmm. um, and cost and timescales to investors and to developers, particularly SME developers. Yeah. Although what I would say is that what we're seeing is that more and more sites are being placed on the market with a residential hope value or such a, or, or even the uh, the existing vendors already obtained uh, a prior approval or a PD, and yeah. they've tried to soak some residential value out of it. And so what they're selling the land for, we're seeing then the profit on GDV on those sorts of sites sinking from, you know, a few years ago when there was a bit more ignorance out there, you know, from about 20% to 
25% down to about 15%, 10%. So more and more and more, you are having to apply for full planning permission to find extra value in it. And also that with a lot of the PD rights, you may have to apply for full planning permission for things like changes to windows and window positions before you go in for prior approval, just simply because of the way it works, the relevance of daylight and sunlight to the future units as well. Uh, And so um, any SME developer who's looking to make um, some decent money uh, to turn a decent profit and also to open up enough opportunities out them out there for themselves in the market. Um, I think if they're thinking that they would be able to just confine themselves to PD and prior approval going forward, um, I think you've got to be really lucky with you know what what sites you select, what opportunities you select, and whether or not you get them to work as well. So you know that's um, you know you you really got to look at full planning as well. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you make a really good point there about don't forget, you're probably going to have to go back and plan in anyway, even if you get a site under PD. You know, you mentioned Windows there, which is an obvious one. Mm. You know, let's say if it's a block of flats, you know, it's a commercial to resi conversion, you might want to yeah. be putting balconies on. Yeah. Exactly. Balconies are going to need planning permission and all these sort of aspects. So, you know, there is a there is always going to be a requirement, I think, um, or, or there's a high probability you're going to need to go in for a proportion of planning, but mm. but it's it's certainly a smaller amount to the bigger, you know, changes. Exactly, yeah. I mean, also with changes in EPC regulations and um, cladding regulations having changed on buildings since they were constructed and now you're converting them to residential use, yeah. um, you may very well also have to look at that as, as far as changes to the exterior of the building was concerned. Absolutely. In, in terms of the, I guess, if we think about the application and we've we've got a pile of paper on our desk and there's mm-hmm. a, on one side, there's the planning application pile up here somewhere. Um, <laughs> and then yeah. on the other side, you've got the permitted development application <clears throat> pile, which you would be a fraction of that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe you could just talk us through the, the components, the component parts of, let's say, start with the planning application and then yeah. we can against the well with a with a planning application the first thing that you obviously end up looking at is the um the requirements under the national planning uh frameworks um called the national validation requirements so you've got um almost by law you have to provide um minimum uh set of plans such as location plans site lo- site plan existing and proposed site plan and block plans um existing and proposed floor plans, sections, elevations, roof plans. Um, And then there's the application form itself and also the ownership certificates within the application form. And the application form can be quite lengthy as well. Uh, So with an application for planning permission, particularly on a site, let's say in London, the Greater London, the mayor asks, also asks you to fill out a whole load of other stuff in relation to water management, um, in relation to uh, waste management, in relation to environmental impact as well, uh, in terms of the specification of the accommodation as well. It's a really, really long list. I mean, it used to take us about, I don't know, probably about half an hour just to fill out an application form. And now it takes a couple of hours to fill out an application form. Um, so, you know, it, it can be quite lengthy. Um, with a prior approval application, the application forms are a lot shorter. Mm-hmm. Um, you will probably need to produce the same sort of plans, detail, but there's actual validation requirements also in PD and in prior approval, particularly, let's say, Class MA, where you actually, for instance, you have to mark on the plans, you have to show compliance with national space standards, so a lot of people don't put in sections, but local authority could actually refuse the application because you haven't shown what the internal floor to ceiling height is and that it complies with national space standards, meets the 2.3 metre minimum. Yeah. Um, you haven't shown perhaps um, the width of the bedrooms because uh, that's marked on national space standards. Um, you haven't shown the individual floor areas of the bedrooms and the, as well as the areas of each of the the flats themselves 
Um, also, you've got to show, at least on some of the windows, if not all of them, on the floor plans and on the elevations, the width and dimensions of the windows as well. So that's actually a requirement. Funnily enough, actually, it's not a requirement for an application for full planning permission. You don't have to mark those dimensions on there, but it is a dimension uh, on a application for prior approval. Um, then with the supporting documents for prior approval, it's a much shorter list because there's much fewer things that actually are relevant. So there's no Section 106 other than, for instance, you might deal with a Section 106 later for car-free housing. And you might have to put in a still uh, community infrastructure levy form because community infrastructure levy might still have to be paid on a, a change of use only. Um, but you'll have, at most, you'll have, say, a phase one or stage one contamination report. You'll have a transport statement. You'll have a flood risk assessment. Um, you'll have a noise statement. Um, you might also have to deal with impact on the character of the conservation area as well for instance if you are let's say you're you're located in a market town and you're looking to convert the rear of a shop in a market town to residential use so let's say your market town or you the parade that you're in the market town is in a conservation area so a lot of premises in market towns they have a special character in the town center because it used to be an old mercantile centre. So it's part of the historic character to have shops and have shop fronts. So if you lose that, you're actually possibly harming the character and appearance of the conservation area, which is relevant for prior approval. So um, um, even if you retain some of the area at the front, some local authorities will say, yes, but are you retaining enough? So you'll have to put in some agency evidence as well, and your floor plans will have to show that there's enough space for storage and welfare services, such as like toilets and kitchens and that sort of stuff, as well as enough trading space. So those are the sorts of things. Then when you get into an application for full planning permission, it could be a much longer list. You might have energy statements. You can have, um, you might have to put in a financial viability appraisal for affordable housing. You might have to, uh, oh, you'll have to have do you usually have to do daylight and sunlight for both in a, in any event as well. And in fact, I would say that's pretty much a prerequisite before you settle plans for a prior approval, never mind for full planning application. Um, but you have, yeah, you have a much longer list of applications for full planning permission as well. Um, and I think in terms of, uh, and that can make it take, uh, it can mean it takes longer to get the, the scheme to together before submission. It also means that it's more costly. I think you're not going to get much change generally out of, say, once you've done surveys and architects' plans, planning consultant, highways consultant, all the rest of it, I don't think you're going to get much change out of 30 to 40,000 pounds. Let's say for a relatively minor um, planning application. Yeah. Now, some of our listeners might go, oh, bloody hell, 30 to 40,000 pounds. Crikey, that takes a lot. That's a lot of funding. Uh, yeah, but um, think of it this way. I mean, I got a, we had a client we were working with on a site for town centre regeneration of a, of a a block in East London, and they were burning through something like two hundred to two hundred fifty thousand pounds in preparing the planning application for that with all the master planning, all the surveys, because you've got a load of environmental surveys as well, structural yeah. surveys over the existing building. Um, you'll have surveys that you have to look at in relation to any works to the foundation services running through the building, existing pipes, cables, utilities, that sort of stuff as well. So, yeah, it all it all really does mount up. And yeah. on, on the really big schemes, you can burn through a lot of cash and you can get up into the hundreds of thousands, yeah. you know, really quite quickly. It, Absolutely. So it's very, very eyes wide open, isn't it? In that, in that regard. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And when you're when you're looking at a particular deal, and you know you do need to get planning permission, and you you may well be protecting yourself in terms of the offer. You know that it is conditional. It is conditional on planning. But just mm. when you're working your numbers down, and you're at that particular box that says planning application or PD or application cost. Yeah. Things. It's always worth you know speaking to David and just chatting through really the. The components of that and mm, each mm. of those components okay we might not be the the point of getting the quote in for each one but we can certainly give guidance 
in terms of a budget number that you know you can build it up and get the right number in uh, the first yeah place. i think so i think also having a good fallback in terms of commercial investment value as well you should always look at that because if you don't get planning on the whole of the site you might only get planning on part of it or you might do a residential-led mixed-use scheme rather than a wholly residential scheme, um, or it takes you several years to get planning, and therefore you may have to have some sort of temporary occupation in there in the meantime yeah. to pay the bills and sort of keep things running so you've got more of a cushion in terms of costs. You need to have a look at all of these options because they'll mitigate your exposure in terms of costs and risk. Yeah. Um, and nothing is, ever goes straightforward in terms of planning. Um, so you know, it's, it's really important. Also, the, the thing is that you may not have the luxury of waiting until you get planning before you have to complete because most of the time, most vendors out there don't want to take that risk. They don't want to walk that journey with you. Some yeah. of them will do. Yeah. And I know that sort of, you know, you buy very well, you sort of, you build up, you spend time building up relationships with mm-hmm. people on the ground as well. But, um, that might take you only so far as the person saying they're willing to sell, but they still want to sell unconditionally. They don't want to take the risk. Yeah. Uh, and they might have their own reasons for that. You know, they yeah. want retirement. They want, they've already decided that, you know, they want to go off to Australia or to Barbados and they've already spent the money on them in their mind. Uh, <laughs> you know how it is. So, um, so, so sometimes you have to be a bit ballsy. You have to commit to it, but you have to have a backup plan B, C and D really. Definitely, absolutely. Almost make it stack up on the back. Yeah, yeah. And sort of different. You've got different structures as well. You can work yeah. with. I mean, as well as options, or for instance, lockouts on deals. So you have time to, for a fee, you might agree that the property is taken off the market, um, informally as well as formally, um, and that um, then you therefore have time to work on the deal and and test it a little bit more with. Uh, perhaps local planners, etc., before you commit to the deal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I guess the six million dollar question is time, isn't it? And it's a real, it's a real difficult one to answer. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, how long is planning permission going to take? How long mm. is PD going? The application going to take? And the answer is really difficult to cover. I mean, in your experience, um, I guess over over your over your career. Um, What's the shortest period? What's the longest period? I suppose the longest period has never been approved, <laughs> but, but uh, the shortest. Well, well, period- well, PD, the shortest period would be, I think, probably let's say two and a half months. So you yeah. got half, you got a half half a month to work with a team, yeah. two weeks to work with a team and get the plans ready and in. Yeah. And then you've got, obviously got the fifty six days to get it through. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that might be extended a bit because most local authorities can't get their asses into gear on Section 106. Like, we've got a few of those at the moment where the officers have come back and say, listen, if it wasn't absolutely perfect on the plans, we would have refused it. Um, but we don't have the time also within eight weeks to deal with the Section 106. So we're, what we're doing is we're waiting to see whether or not we can get to that point just before the 56 days are up. If the plans are okay, there are no objections from our side. If there are, then we go back and we um, ask for an extension of time to sort out the Section 106. Yeah. Uh, so that tends to be how we do it. Even if you draft a Section 106, it's so annoying because I've done this as well. Draft a Section 106, everything's fine. You provided up-to-date copies of title. Um, you've done it actually within a precedent which complies with a law society precedent. They still want some money out of it because they want the legal fees. It's so I'm so cynical about it now. It's just so case hard. It's like I've done all this work to say that we can get a section 106, but they'll come back and say, "Can we agree a section 106?" Well, what's wrong with the one that you've got that we've yeah. just sent through to you? Well, yeah. we've got to view it, review it, and all the rest. Of it. Yeah. I say, "Why well, just just say that you want the fees? That's all." <laughs> I'd have more respect for you if you just came back and told me the truth. <laughs> Absolutely. It can, it can take, it can take time. Bonkers, honestly. Is the answer. And it's, and that's really one of the, I think the key takeaways, just make sure your application is absolutely watertight. Certainly in your mind, um, you've got all the right, all the right reports in there. You're, you're answering all the questions, all the checks and balances. You're you're answering all these points. 
And if you're not, don't submit it because because there could be a tendency, there could be a worst case scenario that the application goes all the way through during its its period, and then the last day they reject it based upon a test. That's what they often do, yeah, particularly with prior approvals. Yeah. yeah. And you, you're almost starting again. I, I think the best the best scenario I've seen... It's even worse if you've got an Article 4 direction coming in on the horizon, so you won't have time. You might not necessarily have time to do another go. You might miss the boat. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Absolutely. But the best, the best collaboration I've seen, um, and David, I think it was working with you, actually, on, on some of our projects, is where the dialogue with the officer is reasonable or it's good, you know, reasonable at best. You know, that's that's yeah, yeah. That's kind of the scenario. And there's a dialogue and there's a back and forth and there's a, I'm not too sure about this on that drawing, you know, and there's an ability to kind of turn a revision around and pop it back in within the timescales. Mm. I think that's a very proactive approach. Um, I don't know what you all see in these days. Um, I know there's obviously a few challenges in the, the planning durations in the market at the moment. Um, but um, certainly, you know, historically, that's been a very a good. It's a positive, nice to see. Yeah, it, it does. It does make a difference. I mean, we do a lot of work outside of London as well, um, yeah. which is a bit of a myth buster to the theory that uh, you should really only instruct planning consultants who are in the area that you're developing. Um, you know, what's the what's the what's the difference between having a planning consultant who's in the area who knows the officers and planning consultant who's outside the area, doesn't know the officers yet, but um, it's quite thorough on policy and through pre-app and then through the course of the application, you build up the relationship with officers. Half the time, we have to do a lot of chasing in any event, hell of a lot of chasing. And I feel as if I'm going up to sort of team leader and head of planning level to chase things down a lot more than I ever used to before. I mean, certainly before COVID, it's just got worse since COVID. I don't think they'll ever go back to working in a normal office again. And apart from which I think so many local authorities are under, um, they're sort of running out of cash that they're looking to redevelop some of their sites. So it doesn't work for them to fill out these big buildings with the previous, with the numbers they previously had. You've also had a lot of staff sort of just disenchanted the public sector and they decided to move on. Yeah, absolutely. And, and therefore, lack of numbers, the workload exactly. should be going up and, you know, yeah. the rest yeah. is inevitable, isn't it? And they're outdated, outdated buildings, a lot of them. They'll cost a fortune to maintain or upkeep or yeah. even bring up to spec absolutely. these days as well. Yeah, so, absolutely. And, yeah. you know, the building regulations changed back in June. You know, that's yeah. it. That's put a, an extra duvet around the, these properties. It's cost yeah. money. Yeah. The expectations of the property from a vendor's perspective is still high. <laughs> you know. Yeah. The the irony the irony is that the local authorities occupy some of the ugliest buildings out there, yeah. um, uh, and yet they expect everybody else to build in accordance with high design values. So it's, it's very very challenging. It's but. A, hysterical, but yeah. Just, just to talk maybe about local authority charges while we're kind of um, working through that subject matter at the moment. Yes. There's obviously things like community infrastructure levy. There's the Section 106. Yeah. Depending where you're located, there may be things like the SANG and the SAM, That's and right. there may be others, you yeah. know. And, yeah. I, and I think, you know, it's it, it could be a potential minefield, some of these charges, you know, SIL, just watch out for you know, the anniversary when they change and indexation starts to come in, you know, oh, you, God, yeah, you budgeted yeah. in this year, but actually we're just between financial years almost in a couple of weeks, aren't we, where indexation could be applied. Well, I've got a horror story on that one. We got um, permission, uh, it was uh, towards the end of last year, um, I think it's so end of 2021, then going into 2022, we got permission for 20 units on a site, so 20 new flats on a site in uh, Harrow, sort of Wildston way. Um, and it was, um, it added about £10 million in GDV to the site. And in fact, when the scheme started, um, they were looking to make roughly about 25% on cost. And then build costs started going through the roof and that started eroding somewhat. And then... We, I think we were expecting the Section 106 to only take about four or five months, and we started the process on that quite early in November 2021. But then the officers took so long 
to settle the Section 106. It wasn't completed and the permission issued until around June, July 2022. In the meantime, the council had a new financial year in April 2022. That triggered um, an index revaluation of SIL, and SIL went up 50% oh my goodness. on the scheme, um, which was the equivalent of about £150,000 added to the bottom line of the scheme. The client at the moment is trying to come to a settlement with the council on it. Because yep. um, the difficulty is they can't break back into the Section 106 because the way the Section 106 was drafted and when it was when the terms of that was settled, um, in order to take out some of the money that we were going to give to the council on Section 106 mm. and give it to SIL. So this is just a, you know, and because you don't get the SIL liability notice until all of these things have been settled. Absolutely. There's a, on, on SIL, there's an interesting um, available option potentially subject to reapplication, but mm. under section 73, but um, in terms of phasing of the cell. Yeah. So if you're... If Installments. You're, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, you, I mean, we know there's, sadly, there's sometimes quite a big number right at the start. Yeah. When you start works, you know, your cell liability will be there and it's, um, you know, it's, it's reaching for the Gaviscon and, um, you know, preparing for that payment. But there may be a way that you could phase that through installments throughout the uh, most councils won't do an installments policy if your payments them is less than half a million yes um so but that's not to say that they're not open to a discretionary agreement yeah they're always worth going to ask if you don't ask you don't get that's what mum used to say wasn't it it's um very much so and so what you can say is no is uh, yeah it's what my parents used to say yeah (laughs) yeah so that, I think they were usually talking about when I was asking them for a favour. What's the word that we can say? No, no harm in asking us. Absolutely. No every time, but, yeah. you know, at least yeah, you are. The question is, the answer is no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. But there's an, a quite good case study there, actually, because um, we, we've just agreed on one of our sites um, in the Waverley Council location. And, um, oh, yeah. yeah, it's, it's £300,000 for the sale, and they've agreed a, um, a phasing of, six installments which is really right good. okay kind of helps you know it's, it's <coughs> yeah draw down that cash so it does i think class ma can make this difficult as well because you've got yeah. to show that before you can put in the application for class ma that i mean certainly in the part that you're looking if you're not doing a phasing of the change of use in the building yeah, yeah. um you have to show three months vacancy of the pot you're converting Same. which um uh, doesn't necessarily um, really kill the opportunity to bring SIL back to zero, but it does make it more difficult because that eats into that period because you have a statutory uh, right to 100% relief if you can show that the building, or at least part of the building, was occupied, let's say, for offices. Yep. There's at least six continuous months in the last three years. Um, and it's worth looking at this very, very early. I think it's a bit like building regulations to some extent. There's a habit to look at these things right at the end. We all get very focused on getting the permission through and then asking ourselves perhaps at the end of section 106 what's the section 106 costs yeah and some of us even are, you know we do ask about the sill calculations as well um but a lot of developers don't really ask about sill and sometimes until it's too late absolutely um all saying and sam contributions as well i think you know that's killed a lot of deals at the 11th hour yeah, absolutely and we we uh, it wasn't um, a prior approval, but it was a change of use. It was Royal Borough, Kensington and Chelsea. Yeah. And it was about, the client was converting about 3,500 square foot. We asked the questions on SIL and calculated the index SIL rate early enough. And it worked out about, it would have worked out about £360,000. It would have absolutely flattened the deal for them, wouldn't have been viable at all. Um, so, you know, we looked into, well, what's the... Um, is there any mitigation here? And mm. so they actually rented out part of the floor space uh, to a, another company for part of that period. So we put that information into the to the officers quite early on. It was about two months before the consent came through. Yep. Um, so asking it is it helps to sort of 
manage the relationship with officers, manage the client's expectations, know that they're not necessarily going to be spending a whole load of money and time on something that's just going to be killed by still at the end of it. Um, and also, sometimes you start asking these questions or putting in the evidence, even if it's genuine, mm-hmm. at the end, it can't help but look a little bit contrived. Mm-hmm. Um and like as if you're trying to wriggle out of the sill now you've been hit with a liability notice yeah um absolutely. so yeah it's it's i think uh, i think there's a watch out here as well um so you know i i think we spoke about a couple of points one is you know sometimes the vendor will push you and won't accept a conditionality so sometimes uh-huh. you've got to do something that's one point i think the second point is if you go back in and let's say agree a really good thing, which is a you know a phasing or a, a you know phasing of the sill payments all the way through. You might be using a section seventy three approach to that. But in any event, and in those two situations, you may be actually looking to sign the section one hundred six or agree a revision to the section one hundred six after the event. Now, there's just something that I think the listeners just need to to hear and this is a this is a personal experience so and unrelated necessarily to planning because this is related to land registry Uh now land registry is taking an inordinate amount of time at the moment to actually register title so if you if you Uh buy let's say you buy a piece of land okay Uh and you go Uh right i bought the land brilliant i'm going to go back in i'm going to make some amendments and then the section 106 now needs to be revised, updated, and you get your lawyers involved, et cetera, et cetera. In, in our situation, and this is um, something that we've just navigated our way through, we couldn't finalise the section 106 because the title hadn't been registered in our name. Uh, uh. And it was like, <laughs> Have you submitted the application to change the title? Yes, absolutely. That was done as part of the conveyancing process. Yeah, and so you'll see you had the contract as well. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So we we provided all that information, that evidence, et cetera, but the, the local authority lawyers are adamant that they would not um, enter into this revised Section 106 agreement until our interests were registered with Land Registry. Did you, and, and, did you suggest to them that if you've provided the contract, you also provided a copy of the forms that have been submitted to change the title to the Land Registry, and also you provide us a solicitor's undertaking that the updated title will be sent over to the local authority once it's come through from land registry that they will allow you to proceed on the basis of the emerging new title you did yes. all of that and they still wouldn't accept it and the computer it's, so it's annoying isn't it it's like the that's uneven it is uneven. we've had we've had local authorities who so i would say you're absolutely right to raise it but yeah. don't stop asking the question in any Absolutely. event. Well, and there's the point, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's knowing what you know. And if any of the listeners <clears throat> are in that situation or feel yeah. that in the next six months they could be in that situation, ask these questions. Ask the questions of <clears throat> local authority, your, you know, of your planning consultant, of your solicitor who's going yeah. to administer that process. And just make sure you get a tick in the box because yeah. sadly, land registry has taken an enormous amount of time to register title. Uh, in some cases, up to eighteen months. You know, so that's just uh, just. A- mm, mm, mm. And you know, and if you've agreed a cracking deal on on phasing of sill, but you literally can't start site, that that advantage of the phasing might be just obliterated for the fact that you can't actually start on site. Mm, uh, mm. Because if you were to start on site, possibly the previous um still demand may may be empowered you know and, and uh, uh. into that process so but yeah so there's, there's a few <laughs> challenges uh to yeah. say to say the least anyway we've, we we touched on um earlier we've we've worked together for a few years now which has been great and you know the journey's been um absolutely awesome and you know it's, it's one of the reasons you are um a trusted partner within the Equa academy and um, you're you're helping to serve all of our uh, our members as well, which is just absolutely fantastic. But I, I was just going to maybe just reflect on a couple of case studies. Um, uh, I, whether we've got the time here today, but we've got Weybrook House and we've got Zurich House. So, mm. you know, in in terms of um, Weybrook, um, I mean that was 
22 units um, <coughs> permitted development on. Uh, we went for an extra extra lift as well on that. We decided not to progress on that. And that was really just from a point of view of we needed to crack on with the scheme and just get in and get out, you know, and that was that was where we were at that time. Mm. Um, and Zurich House particularly, that was quite a big lump. It was the Zurich Insurance um, European headquarters in Crawley. And, um, yeah, we went for a, the PD there, didn't we, for 44 units. And um, and then we went for a lift on top, which was quite interesting. But the journey, David, was interesting, wasn't it? Yeah, it was another nine units on top, wasn't That's it? That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, that's something very interesting over that because we did, I think we did five one beds and then four two beds, if I remember rightly, on the nine beds scheme. That's it. And um, we had a battle with the council in terms of getting a sweet spot to the studio rooms within the one beds because one beds were slightly larger than they needed to be, but they were still under 50 square metres. The council were a bit suspicious about us trying to crow in a two bed unit. Uh, and they said, well, when we sort of proposed some of the studio rooms they or study rooms, they said, oh, they're too big. They, they're big enough to be a bedroom. So it's like, uh, I had to take a picture of my office here and said, well, actually, it's these dimensions. And once you put in a desk and wardrobe and all the rest of it, then it's actually, you, you, you got barely enough room to swing a cat, quite frankly. <laughs> so, um so yeah, we managed to get that through, but that added each of those rooms, um, they added fifteen thousand pounds to the GDV, didn't they? That's what yes. I think Phil told me that. Um, yeah, and um, the, so that was another seventy-five thousand pounds on the GDV yeah. just by being just by being clever in your use of space. Absolutely, absolutely, and you know the time as well. We think of the time that was. We turned. We had two COVID projects, and that was one of them. Um, mm. And um, we know what happened, and you know, and the the focus on having that ability to work from home, you know, really came in, and you know, and and were there, you know, that that office space there was it actually worth that money? Yeah. Um, from a physical space point of view, probably not, but from a demand point of view, absolutely. You know, yeah. people now wanted it. Um, so yeah, just a, just a bit of clever thought, and sometimes it's that uh, quiet room and a coffee, isn't it? And just That's kind right. of think it yeah. through and see where the opportunity is, just to maximise your your return is is really really important. The so interesting, yeah, the interesting thing on that one actually was also it was you had to start on site. I think you started putting the steels up on site just before the new air rights PD came into force. Because I remember when we got the planning permission through, you had to pay about fifty thousand pounds in affordable housing contribution because exactly. they, because yeah, cause Crawley had a a low, uh, they had a small sites contribution policy. Um, so I had a discussion with Phil. Well, now the new laws come in, can we just put in an application for exactly the same thing this way? You won't have to pay the affordable housing. Um, he said that's a great idea. Um, I said, well, as long as you haven't started on site. Oops. <laughs> he said, oh, we've had to put the steels in. We we couldn't stop. So, but, but I mean, there's an interesting learning there. Sometimes councils will be more willing to grant you a planning application mm. rather than they will uh, grant you planning permission on the full application rather than to grant prior approval and PD. Um, and the key difference between the two is there's no affordable housing requirement in relation yeah. to the PD or prior approval. Yeah. So you can put in for planning. Uh, to negotiate the right scale and mass and external appearance and all the rest of it, they'll say, well, can we have £50,000 to the affordable housing contribution? Say, so, fine, okay, then here's £50,000. It's in the section 106. And then you put in the PD or prior approval application Absolutely. Um, uh, for more or less the same thing. And yeah. uh, that doesn't require the section 106. So, yes. and that's Absolutely. what you'll implement. Yes, very much so. So yeah, it's um it was it was kind of take us with one and give us with the other, wasn't it? It was a bit. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think I actually I think if I remember rightly, they wanted about 100, 150,000 first. Mm-hmm. And then we negotiated them down to fifty thousand pounds. Right. Exactly. Exactly. They they it was like a magic number for them. Yeah. Yeah. So I th- I think there's a lesson there. There's there's a lesson of, you know, keeping close yeah. with your planning consultant, understanding policy that could be coming down the track as well. Yeah. 
and the timing of that and the overlay of that in terms yeah. of your your scheme because we we know this the score you know you you buy a scheme you you possibly bought it with development finance and private investment probably or, or you know mixture of whatever but that's got a time limit you know you've got yeah. to get into it you can't hold back because if you if you're starting to knock on the door of the end of your facility period yeah. You're into refinancing, and nobody wants that because yeah. you—that's going to cost you lots of money. So, so it's a constant balance of opportunity versus the risk getting a little bit close to your, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, the end yeah. of the facility with your lender, really. So, uh, but anyway, it's great, great case to study that one. I think. I think the the main takeaway on on Waverley was um, sometimes the need to be patient. Yes. In terms of putting an application, because I think you and Mark were itching to get that application. And I said, no, 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 no. We've got to do a full flood risk assessment. Yeah. They'll throw it out if you haven't done a full flood risk assessment. And thankfully, um, you kindly gave us time to get the full flood risk assessment done, which is just as well, because if we hadn't have done that, the officers later told me when they granted it, says so just as well you put it in because we've had to deal with similar schemes recently, they didn't do a full or proper flood risk assessment. They didn't consult the environment agency before yeah. they, the, this is the consultant, our consultant, consulting yeah. the environment agency. So yeah. basically they get consulted twice. They get asked by our consultant who updates the flood risk assessment, puts that into the council, and the council then has to consult the environment agency during the application. So, you know, you think to yourself, well, why do we need to talk to the environment agency if the council is going to do it anyway? But it's, um, delegitimizes in a, in a sense to a degree the um the strength of the environment of the flood risk assessment report so it's so that was the delay yeah in us putting that application in because we were waiting for the environment agency to respond and they can take sometimes about you know 10 weeks or something like that to respond it's like you could get one we're going to get this application in. come on david when uh, are we going to do it can it be this week no 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 we're gonna, it's gonna have to wait you're gonna have to wait maybe the Waverley planning officer came back to me in the end and says, just as well you did it that way, because otherwise we'd have refused it straight away. Yeah. And it would have taken more time. <clears throat> yeah. 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 Very, very wise words. And I remember those times vividly. <laughs> 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 it's like it was yesterday. But yeah. A great yeah. result nonetheless. So thank you. Again. Yeah. But it was a great opportunity because a lot of people turn their noses up at flood risk sites. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also, as I was actually quite interesting because what you see on the government flood risk map is not everything. There's actually more detailed maps called LIDAR maps, and they, they actually turn the, the, the government map, which is at 2D, they turn it into a 3D model. Because what you might not actually see is the part where the building is built has been raised up slightly. Oh, I see. So although you might be sitting on a patch in 2D terms that might be in the middle of a flood zone 2 or flood zone 3, because of a slight change in the topography of the land, in 3D terms, it's actually flood zone one. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. That's going into that. Yeah. Very much so. Very much so. Oh. David, that was great. Um, <clears throat> just, to, um, just to remind everybody, really, you know, it's so, so important, you know, as part of your professional team to have the right people around you. Um, we're, we're so grateful and thankful. Thank you to David for supporting us over these years. And, you know, he's got us out some scrapes and achieved some amazing results as well, you know, which is just fantastic. And uh, sometimes you've got to be patient, David, haven't you? With these, uh, well, it's a two-way process because I learned an awful lot working with the likes of you and other people as well. It helps us to be, to be more relevant, more commercial absolutely. and more useful as planning consultants. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very, very much so. And, you know, the opportunity for people as i was just going right back to the beginning of this this podcast is is change of use piece of land that's you know a piece of land five thousand pound an acre to what could be half a million pound for that yeah. same acre just by having a ticket on it you know it might take yeah. you a little bit of time and spend a bit of money but it won't be half a million yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know so you know i think the opportunity is is really rife and as long as you can protect yourself Everybody's got different circumstances. You know, if you've got cash in the bank and you just want to deploy it, you may want to take a view and take a risk. But yeah. you know, equally on the other end of the risk scale, you could take an option on the land or a 
exchange subject to planning, let's say. Yeah. Um, so there's there's various ways you can... Even with greenbelt land, or a land in rural settings or in the countryside, there's always something that you can do to it. It may not necessarily be a residential conversion, yeah. but you might be able to put some sort of commercial rural use on there as well and add value to it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I'm dying to get onto this bit. So, David, you've got a bit of a special offer, haven't you? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> which, is, which is brilliant. And um, so, so maybe I'll just hand over to you and just, just tell everybody about your special offer at the moment. Well, um, happy to, so we, we usually give a sort of initial free hour consultation. Um, and um, it's best on a live scheme. So sort of come to us and you've got a live scheme, you want us to go through it. Sometimes if you want us to do um, sort of look through things on an hour basis, um, sometimes we charge for full planning appraisals to go through things. Um, but other times what we'll do is we'll book a time for an hour and we'll go through the scheme live with you um, on a Zoom. We'll look at Street View, we'll look at Google Maps and all the rest of it. Uh, and we'll go into quite some detail on it um, and sort of, you know, we could always record that session. Um, it's like a Zoom session. Uh, we we'll sort of record it. And so you'd be able to play it back. Uh, so happy to do that for free. Generous. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, that's, that's a wrap really. I mean, we, that's, that's episode one. Um, as I say, we're planning another four episodes within this series. Um, very exciting subject matter, I have to say, very relevant. And, um, you know, from a business case point of view, I think everybody should be looking at it for sure. Um, the next episode that's going to come up uh, is uh, journey through the planning process. So, again, that's mm. going to be a deep dive into the journey through it. You know, that that those relationships we've touched on today, but getting into more detail, which is mm. which is great. So, yeah. Thank you, David. It's been, as always, a pleasure. And uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks, Nigel. Thank Cheers you. Then. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode. And if you would like more inspiration, why not join our Facebook group, Property Developers and Investors, or visit our website, www.equaacademy.co.uk.